Hello and welcome to Lecture 8A of MGI 521 Professional Communications. My name is Brenton Birchmore. We are about to examine some of the details of facilitating. Facilitating workshops, brainstorming or similar dynamic gatherings, whether live and in person or online and digitally. And this is not specifically about chairing a meeting. That's a separate discussion. This is about assisting outcomes from groups of people who are gathered in a single encounter. That's the simple definition, which means that we can facilitate a whole range of encounters and meetings and gatherings. We can facilitate social events, negotiations, disagreements, panel discussions, anything that has both a purpose and a group. But the purpose transcends the individuals within the group. It is a collective purpose. So this is about the facilitation process and the role of that person in that process, assuming, of course, that that's us. Now, a facilitator is always neutral. They don't take sides. They don't usually have strong viewpoints. A person who's unable to have a neutral perspective is difficult to have the trust and to encourage everyone else in the environment to speak up neutrally. So us being neutral as a facilitator allows others to be themselves without them having to be something else that's in response to us. So they don't need to react to us when we are encouraging conversations, when we are promoting, when we are discussing, when we are trying to facilitate. They're not reacting to us. They're simply being themselves. And as a facilitator, we're responsible really for one thing, which is what everything else leads from, and that is the objective, the reason for everyone getting together in the first place. And that means we are responsible for everything that leads to or contributes to that objective. It means we're responsible for things like the emotional harmony of the group, for creating and promoting creativity, and the safety that people need to have that creativity. The freedom to express, but also the fairness. The opportunity, the shared opportunities. But also the clarity of understanding that comes from everyone having shared and understood. And then, of course, the leveraging of all that benefits and the ideas and the opportunities into actual outcomes. So our role is to ensure that the voices and the ideas are shared. Usually, the reason we have any kind of gathering in the first place is because of the unexpected interactions of logic and inspiration that come from having people get together. It is the unexpected awareness that someone mentions something, suggests something, asks something that they wouldn't have otherwise thought of. But because they were exposed to new ideas and thoughts, it prompted their own thoughts to go in a new direction and allowed the inspiration, the innovation, the new idea to come forward. That's what we need to promote and maximize. So where do we start? Well, we need to set expectations. We need to let all of the participants know what is expected of them, what they can expect from others, what they can expect from us. We need to be clear on what is the purpose? What's the point of this? Why are we all involved in this? Clarify the objective and share it evenly and thoroughly. And our role as the facilitator is to be the representative of that goal and that objective and its journey. And that's all we represent. We're not representing 
other entities if we can avoid it. We just represent the result. So if we are going to contribute to that, we need to contribute neutrally, not opinionated, but neutrally. Our tool through this process is usually questions. We ask a ton of questions. And we ask targeted questions specifically of certain people when we know we need to. We ask questions of those who we think will know the answer, an answer that we feel others need to hear. We might ask questions of those who have something to say, who might not have had an opportunity to say it yet. They look like they want to say something. We make sure they have that moment of freedom to do so. We ask questions of those who object and give them an opportunity to explain their objections. We ask questions of those who nod their heads or shake their heads. And we ask questions of those who react to what other people do or say in the environment. So we have planned objectives, but we also have the unplanned objectives. And these are the things that evolve throughout the facilitated process. They come from the answers that get discovered and revealed. They come from all of the revelations that will enter into the discussion and enter into people's minds that might have started from some planned objectives, but we need to be able to be flexible and allow these new unplanned objectives to enter into the discussion because that's where the gold lies. Those unplanned objectives are usually the real reason for this gathering. They are what we must distill and evolve into something more useful. Now, there's a few common types of objectives that might be there for many of these kinds of gatherings. There might be decisions that need to be made collectively. There might be an education. There might be a need to help people understand something, something that's difficult to understand. Or it might be about reaching agreement, resolving conflicts. Or it might be creative, looking for new ideas and new thoughts. So gatherings about decision-making is about reaching a sufficiently agreed position to be able to move forward. It's to remove the obstacle. It doesn't mean we need to get everyone agreed, but we need to get enough agreed and we need to know what that threshold is. Education is about increasing the knowledge and awareness, the aligned understanding of the majority of the group involved, having them all see things and understand things in a similar way. Agreement is about conflict resolution. It's not about alignment. It's about agreement. It's a step beyond alignment. It's dealing with disputes or arbitration or negotiation. And the creative is about the brainstorming, the new ideas, the possibilities, the things we haven't yet thought of. So as we work as a facilitator to achieve the outcomes, there are four major stages that we need to go through. The first typically is the initial invention, the initial unlocking, the initial sharing of ideas and understanding. It's getting things out there. It's anything is a start, and usually any start is useful. This is where all things are possible at the beginning of the discussion. This is where we might be asking the what if questions. What about this? Encouraging the initial sharing and the starting point. Sometimes the attendees can be stuck in their own perspective. They can be mentally engaged in their own agenda or their own ideas. But the facilitator can see all of the different perspectives and can often function as a bridge 
joining people or shifting them out of their original starting position or thought pattern or logic or even mood. And the initial formative stages is where we discover where everyone's at and we get everything revealed. The next stage is the clarifying stage. This is where we will resolve uncertainties. We look to remove the logical imperfections. We will prioritize things. We will probably decide what it is we're not going to continue discussing. We will refine and define what this conversation is really about. And it should only be enough that we can deal with it with the time and effort we have available. The next stage is the maturity stage. We evolve the ideas. We evolve the outcomes, the progress that's been achieved. We modify and improve it. We test it. We test it for validity. We test it for suitability. We challenge it. We get the challenges brought out and discussed. We get them tested. And we figure out what version of this truth has survived those challenges. Lastly, we share the outcomes. We get everyone on the same page. And we create this aligned understanding so that as we reach conclusions, as we have resolutions to whatever our outcome or objective was, everyone has the same or similar understanding of what that means to them and what that means to others, including what it means to the common entity that binds us all together, which might often be the company or the department or whatever entity we belong to. Now, after this, there is a final step, which is the follow-up. But this is something that we'll cover more in a subsequent discussion. But as a quick example, let's look at the, the brainstorming type of gathering. This is where we want to have creative input and investigation of new ideas. Let's look at this one in a little more detail. Now, brainstorming is any creative group situation. It's any situation where we don't have all the answers, and we're hoping that the people here might have some answers or might get to the answers. So it's about getting things started. It's about getting things moving, get some momentum and then fine-tune them so that they become something useful at the end. So the stage that we begin with is getting all of the ideas out there. And as that later slows down and the imagination comes up with more and more bizarre or crazy ideas, we start to see that, well, perhaps at that stage, all the logical ones have already been shared, and we can then begin to prioritize. But don't rush to that stage. Don't let others rush to that stage. Get all of the ideas, even the crazy ones out there, because until you've got mostly crazy ideas coming forward, you can't be sure that you've gotten all of the good ones. The facilitation process is a lot about making decisions about the flow of the discussion the progression of the discussion, and it's about guiding that flow. It's when to shift to the next stage and helping the majority of the attendees to be focused on whatever the current stage of the discussion is meant to be. So if we are in the idea phase, we help people understand that and we avoid people rushing ahead to the critical analysis phase. So. We're the ones that are meant to decide when we go forward or when and if we might need to go back a step. We decide what to do with tangents, whether they're core, whether they're not, and what to do about the people involved as they tackle these issues. 
But we need to have some respect for momentum. We don't want to break the flow. We don't want to interrupt people or break a flow of discussion. We want to manage it. If we lose a voice or if we lose a thought from the environment, from somebody who has a thought, if we stymie that, that thought is often gone for good and they won't remember it later. So momentum in a lively discussion is very valuable and usually something to preserve. Flow is a real intellectual and emotional momentum of thought. This is similar to the vectors of change. As those vectors change, they gain momentum. Flow actually happens in the brain. It is an alignment of our thoughts and the neural pathways that govern those thoughts, which then can allow new, inspirational, unexpected connections to other thoughts. This is the eureka moment, and they might not seem dramatic at the time, but they can be of something that triggers an inspirational connection in someone else's mind at the time. So this then leads to what a facilitator might need to do about the emotional element, managing egos, managing anger or fear, sometimes allowing it to come out, but also compartmentalizing it and not allowing it to take over. So facilitation is responsible for making sure that those who participate are participating in the purpose of that moment in each moment as it progresses. This means that we might also need to manage the emotional disposition of some participants just as much as their intellectual focus of the topic at hand. This is partly why we need to be neutral and calm and why we need to have a neutral emotional space to encourage others to at times join us in our obvious neutral emotional space. Our role as the facilitator is generally an accepted role, but it's not always obvious. People might be clear about it up front when you're setting the ground rules, but halfway through, they'll usually forget. It'll be subliminal. But if we've gotten their buy-in up front, then we can leverage that to be in control of the situation because we're still responsible for the outcome. Facilitators get their empowerment from usually three main sources. One is competency. This is about particular skills or knowledge. It's about knowing enough about something that means that people will respect our facilitation of that kind of discussion. Another is political, an externally given power, an authority that says, well, there is effectively the law of consequence applied here. Participants may allow us to facilitate because we outrank them. The third is charisma. And this is about our personality and our conduct and the way in which we encourage them to participate. The way in which we use our communications abilities to give them an open space and also to give them confidence that we will manage everyone else's open space to reach a mutually beneficial collective outcome. But we exercise our control by guiding the discussion, not by guiding the people. Our job is to not tell people how to think or tell people how to feel. Our job is to help that become a necessary part of the discussion or not, if it needs to or shouldn't. When they bring something helpful, we encourage it, promote it, and encourage others to embrace it. When they bring something disruptive or damaging to the objectives, we ask them to avoid letting that override the collective goals here. 
Facilitating can also mean encouraging and promoting some participants who are generally quiet. We need to get all of the input, otherwise there's little point in having them there. Of course, facilitation has some practical elements, managing time, managing administrative tasks, record keeping, the comfort, the environment that we're in, the follow-up, and making sure that things are useful in the long term. But in the end, the results of the gathering will come from those people involved. It won't come from us, but it might come because of us. We are one part coach, one part keeper and wrangler, and one part diplomat. But if we do all three of those well enough, we might be called a facilitator. This is the end of Lecture 8A. Hello and welcome to Lecture 8B of MGI521 Professional Communications. This is Brenton Birchmore. We're going to talk about meetings. Now we've all been to many meetings. We've all had some great ones and some terrible ones. Much has been written and said about meetings. What we're going to explore here is a little bit about why some of the guidance and tips and suggestions for good meetings exist. Why, where do they come from? What's the forces behind it? So looking at the fundamentals, meetings are meant to happen for a reason. It's because of the results we get. But the results actually come from three different phases, three different stages of what goes on in and around meetings. But a third of that, a third of what contributes to the result happens before the meeting is even taking place. Another third of it, roughly, will happen during the meeting itself, and a third will happen after the meeting is finished. So if we're only doing the meeting, then we're probably only going to get a third of the way towards achieving the results that we were hoping the meeting was going to give us. So to help understand this, let's go back and think about some of what we spoke of earlier with communications. The three vectors of change. A meeting is often a complex exchange of those three vectors going on at a different pace, in different directions, between different people all of the time. We have lots of people in our meeting who are trying to enhance what others know, or are trying to influence how others feel, or even control what others do. This is a dynamic byplay of multiple attempts at controlling these three vectors. As the person chairing a meeting, or responsible for it, it's up to us to manage and orchestrate that flow so that we have a better chance of achieving the common goals. So we can divide the challenges of running successful meetings into three different elements that line up with the three stages, the three thirds that we just talked about. And the first big challenge is engagement. This is about how a person becomes ready to engage with the meeting, and in particular with the purpose of that meeting. So this is more than simply having an agenda. It's more than simply saying, well, this is what we plan to cover. It's about helping individuals know what their reasons for being there are going to be. Helping them understand our reasons for inviting them, but their reasons for accepting the invitation. It's not just listing what should happen in the meeting, not just listing the talking points, but the ultimate strategic purpose the goal, the expectations of the outcomes, which might only manifest after all of the leverage has happened afterwards. This is the buy-in. This is the engagement. This is the motivation and the reason to attend. People don't want to attend a meeting because there's interesting things on the agenda. They want to attend the meeting because 
what they think will happen or will change or will be decided from that meeting is worth their time. So we need to have a clear purpose before we can share that, before we can have engagement. So we must understand what the goals are, and then we have an engagement strategy. And the engagement strategy is to tell the difference between attendance versus involvement. This is where we turn attendees into participants in our meeting. So every meeting we decide to hold, we have to put some thought into what's our engagement strategy. And in some cases, it'll be complex and involved, and in others, it'll be very simple and brief. It will depend on the nature of the meeting and its purpose. But our engagement strategy always needs to link back to their agenda, the participants that we want to have involved. If we don't get aligned with our engagement strategy, with their purpose, they will bring their own purpose. They will bring their own reason for attending. And as a minimum, that may be a risk of cross-purposes with our agenda or with others. And worst, it might be them trying to hijack the meeting and hijack its purpose. So engagement needs to have relevance to those we've invited. It relates to them and what reasons they would have and what they're going to get out of it or what they're expected to give. So if they're giving in the meeting, we need to help them understand how that's going to benefit everybody else, how that's going to contribute to the overall purpose of the meeting. They might not get a lot out of it themselves. It might be simply a tax on their time, an overhead for them, but that's still worth it if they have some value or see the value in the overall goal and purpose of doing that. Now, this does lead to the practical things that we need, like an agenda, which needs to be shared, and we need to be clear on why each person is involved. And as we ask ourselves that question, why is this person involved? What's their engagement strategy? This might help us decide that there are some people whom we don't need, whom we might have assumed, but upon checking the engagement strategy, we feel maybe they don't need to be there. But if they do, the engagement strategy helps them prepare for what they need to do or be or give or hear as part of that meeting. So the first role and the first challenge of the meeting organiser is to ensure engagement of the attendees, the participants, the right people for the right reasons with the right intentions. This also lets us set expectations for the meeting that helps us control the next stage of the meeting paradigm. It gives us empowerment by establishing what's in the meeting and what isn't. And it's from this establishment that we get our position over the meeting itself when it takes place. Because by setting this up front, by having it take into account the participants and then sharing it, they then subscribe to our vision of the meeting simply by their willingness to attend. Now, they might try to stretch that. They might even try to derail it. But they came to that meeting knowing what we expected of them and for them. And that gives us empowerment, an implicit buy-in for the agenda that we've shared and for the purpose and goals that we've shared and for our reasons for having the meeting. This lets us have some control over the second stage, which is momentum. This is what actually happens in the meeting. So as a meeting organiser, during the meeting, what we are looking for is momentum. That's what we're in charge of. And this is a, a simple way of saying that we need to keep things moving in the meeting 
in the right direction, in the direction of the objectives and the outcomes that we're aiming for, the whole reason for being there. So we work on pruning off the tangents that come up in the conversation. We work on giving everyone their say, which might be fulfilling their purpose for being there, the purpose for us inviting them. We make sure that they fulfill that purpose. We keep things on topic. We work through the plan for the meeting, which is related to the agenda. And we continually refine the intellectual and at times emotional discussions. So let's look at those three vectors again. There is a lot of intellectual discussion that is meant to happen at the beginning of the meeting. There's a lot about what people think. People are sharing and shaping what they think and what others think. And this gives us parameters for what conclusions might come out of that meeting eventually, decisions or uh, results. But the emotions are what ultimately leads to decisions being made. The intellectual will guide that, but the emotions are the reasons to make a decision. They're the reasons for the outcomes. And we need to often get them revealed. We need to get them on the table and perhaps allow them to be modified by what has been shared intellectually. Clarify the emotional positions, resolve them. These are the reasons for change. So part of our management of the momentum of the meeting is not getting stuck. It's not getting distracted. It's about continual clarity and evolution of the discussion. And occasionally we will need to interject in order to do that, and we do so whenever is needed. But when we're managing emotions, our job is not to tell people how to feel, but to tell them or to guide them on how they should allow their feelings to impact this meeting or not, ensuring that it doesn't override the purpose or the goal of the meeting. People have reasons for their feelings, and our role is not to discard those feelings or to challenge those reasons. It's to ensure that they work constructively towards the collective outcomes that the group is aiming for. So we don't squash the emotions necessarily, but we might direct them. And some meetings might need to continue until all of those emotional conflicts get resolved, until enough calm is reached that decisions and conclusions can also be reached and agreed upon. Now, we're empowered to do this and work on this because we set the expectations. And clearly, if we're going to retain that power, we need to stick to those expectations. We need to preserve what it is we're working on in this meeting. Or if we do need to reset that, if what's been uncovered in a meeting warrants and justifies a change in the purpose of the meeting, we need to get buy-in for that. We need to recognize that. And we are the ones responsible for recognizing that then shaping it and clarifying what that new set of outcomes or expectations might be and getting the buy-in. And if we don't get the buy-in, maybe we should stick to the original goals for now and have a separate meeting later. These are the kinds of decisions we will need to make. Meetings are an investment of people's time. We don't own their time. We have to earn it. And if we want to change their reason for being there once they're already there, well, we usually need to earn that as well. So controlling the intellectual momentum of the discussion usually isn't too difficult. But controlling the emotional momentum is often much harder because that's what leads to the motivational momentum. And the motivational momentum largely occurs after the meeting is finished. This brings us to the final challenge 
and the final one-third of where the benefits come from, which is the leveraging phase, which is usually after we've all left the room. So imagine we had a great meeting, we had lots of aligned understanding and discussion, we got some feelings resolved, people are motivated, good things are going to happen. Or are they? Whether or not things actually happen after the meeting actually begins right back in the engagement phase. It's harder to get people to do things after the meeting when it had nothing to do with their reasons for coming to it in the first place. So linking it back to why everyone came here and what this meeting was really all about is a starting point for being able to leverage the potential of what might happen next. Because meetings don't usually result in things happening and being completed. In the meeting, usually all that we complete is the decision to do something else later. We haven't actually done it yet. It's potential. And whether or not that potential gets realised will depend upon how everyone responds after the meeting is gone. And we're not doing it to nag people. We're not doing it to merely follow up. But we're doing it to help preserve and take advantage of the effort that's already been expended in attending the meeting and make sure that that is leveraged into an outcome that we all expected it might do. If we get our engagement strategy right, we will have people coming to this meeting and bringing good energy and bringing an expectation that after the meeting, there will be other things they need to do. If we've managed our momentum in the meeting well, then we'll have achieved the expectation that good things will follow once the meeting is concluded. But what often happens next is we all go back to the daily grind. We move on with the next target, the next thing on our to-do list, and we forget about what was meant to come out of that meeting. Leveraging is the phase that makes sure that any potential positive benefits or expectations from that meeting ultimately turn into reality. So a big part of this is recording the commitments of who has promised to do what. And recording this is not the same as simply telling someone what they need to do and recording the fact that they were told to do that. But better is we get them to agree that they will do it and we record their commitment to that outcome. We record their promise, their expectation, and the fact that everyone else now has that expectation that they've made that commitment. We get others to respond and accept what commitments certain participants have made. A person makes a commitment, we set some expectations, some parameters around that, and others accept that. And if they don't, we resolve those disputes. And then it gets recorded. And the record is of the commitment and its acceptance by the other participants. So during the recording phase at the end of the meeting, we resolve any disputes so that the records of what's actually meant to happen is no longer in dispute. Because if we record something that wasn't resolved, we create a large chance for these participants to say, well, actually, no, I didn't agree to that. And so I'm not going to do it. Well, we had them there in the meeting. We had them in the room. That was our chance to get them to say, well, yes, okay, I no longer object to this. I will commit to it. But if they keep those objections to themselves, if we don't bring them out, recognise them and overcome those barriers, they'll take those objections away and they'll potentially use that as an opportunity to not do what everyone's expecting and just go back to what they were normally doing. This can often link back to consequences. We might record and understand and accept that there are consequences if actions that are being committed to or expected are not done. 
consequences aren't necessarily punitive. It's not about punishing people. It's about saying, well, if Fred is meant to do something by Friday and he doesn't, well, then that will make things worse for Mary. So the consequence is that Mary's job is harder. And by making sure that Fred understands that and recording that in the leveraging phase, we know that Fred is committed to do this by Friday because if not, Mary will have this other problem. So when we record the commitments, we're recording some specific criteria. Clearly, we're going to record what is expected, but also when it is expected and as specifically as we can be. Not just what week, but what day or whatever specifics we can find and agree upon. We might also agree on what the follow-up would be, what the stage two, what the secondary consequences. So if Fred doesn't get it done by Friday, then Fred might make a secondary commitment that says, well, if I can't get it done by Friday, I will agree to have a meeting with Mary on Monday about it. Because it might be that there are variables. Those commitments aren't ironclad. Things might come into play that people can't predict right now. So maybe we'll need to record secondary follow-ups, secondary leverage points. But we're primarily looking for people to take responsibility. And when necessary, we apply accountability. And this is the two things we're looking for, accountability versus responsibility. We can give accountability, and accountability is based on a connection to the consequences if it's not performed. Responsibility can't be given, it can be taken. People take responsibility for something, and that's based on their own integrity and their willingness to commit and to follow through on what they've committed to. Some actions from meetings will need a bit of each, part commitment and part consequence. But it's not about controlling someone's time and effort. It's about leveraging the time and effort that everyone has spent in that meeting. Our role as the chair of that meeting is to give every good intention its best chance for being converted into reality. So recording all of this, usually in the meeting, is the first step. Sharing it after the meeting is the next Checking for responses, checking for oversight, checking for something that's missing or not agreed upon is the next step. Context becomes important here because when we're all in the meeting, all the things we talk about and promise to do, they look important in the meeting because our mind is full of the context of that meeting. But when we step out of the meeting, we go back to the daily grind, that thing we talked about in the meeting loses focus because we get reminded of everything else that's important in our lives and in our to-do lists. Some people make plans and commitments, quite honestly, in the excitement of the meeting, but once that excitement simmers down, their ability to meet that commitment becomes more and more difficult. We might need to reset expectations to more practical parameters, which is often better than losing the outcome altogether. As chair of a meeting, we want to leverage every meeting for real outcomes that make a difference. We want to engage and empower our participants, to feel the same way, to believe that meetings can be useful if we make them useful so that people are less likely to be jaded about meetings that they attend. If we set the expectations that we as the chair will work hard to make every meeting useful, to make every participation relevant and leveraged, then people will learn to respect those things in our meeting. They will subscribe to those same goals and be more likely to work with us on achieving them. But it doesn't usually matter where these great ideas come from or where the decisions come from or where these potential outcomes occur. It could be 
in a scheduled meeting with attendees. It could be in an accidental meeting in the cafeteria. It could be at a golf game. It could be at lunch. It could be Friday night drinks. All of these meetings might potentially yield outcomes, potential results that simply need leveraging. So it often doesn't really matter how the possibility and potential came about, but it always matters what we do with it and how we leverage it later. Arguably, the most important element of anything we do is the follow-up. This is the end of Lecture 8b. Hello and welcome to Lecture 8c of MGI 521 Professional Communications. This is Brenton Birchmore, and we're going to try to briefly cover the vast topic of leadership in a professional communications context. Now, of course, there has been many books written, many articles, much research, and still more to do on the topic of leadership. And in many ways, we're still perhaps not sure that we've really nailed down the full extent of this idea, or what it means to be a leader. Comparing it to something like management is somewhat simplistic, and perhaps a bit misleading. Management has a commercial context. It's a functional perspective. It's a narrow application. Leadership is not an alternative to management. Leadership is a form of social behavior. Management is a small piece of all of the ways in which leadership can affect human interactions. So whilst management might be applicable in a commercial environment, leadership is any social interaction, any interaction between human beings. Leadership can happen anywhere because social influence can happen anywhere. So leadership is not a method, it's not a means to an end, it's a philosophy, a paradigm. It's a way of making decisions, it's a way of thinking, a way of feeling, but also a way of responding to how others think and feel. Let's look at one particular definition of leadership. If we look them up, we'll find many. But there's one in particular by Kevin Cruz, who's written a lot about leadership and is worth researching for more information. Now, he says leadership is a process of social influence which leverages and maximizes the efforts of others towards the achievement of a common goal. Let's restate that. A process of social influence which leverages and maximizes the efforts of others towards the achievement of a common goal. Let's break that down into its components. At the start, we're talking about social influence. They're very key words because it's about people. It's people influencing other people. It's not faceless, nameless departments or roles or titles or organizations or other entities. It's specific human beings influencing other human beings. You can't take over leadership from someone else just because you took over their job title or their role or their position, which you can do with management. You can take the authority simply by stepping into another's shoes. And it's quite explicitly influence, not instruction. It's not enforcement. It's not control. It's not management in terms of the allocation of resources. It's influence. Influence creates this separation between intention and volition, between the goal and the outcome and the suitability of that goal. In influence, those two are not automatically linked. Influence means that a leader will decide what their intention is, what their goals and outcomes and desires might be, but 
they allow others to make their own judgment of the suitability of that intention. They use their own volition to decide whether or not it's worth it to them. So leaders decide what they believe is right, what they think should be achieved, and they allow others to make their own choice, but they hope to influence those others into aligning their choices with that of the leader. But they don't try to take away the power of choice from other people. They want to influence it, not own it. Going a little further, our definition talks about leveraging and maximizing the efforts of others. Leveraging as a principle is the idea that a small amount of direction applied at one end creates a more powerful impact at the other end. That's the nature of a lever. But we're talking about people here. Or more explicitly, we're talking about the talents and abilities, the power and potential of those people. And so we're saying that a little bit of guidance applied to that power that other people have can turn that outcome into something bigger at the other end. But it is still their power. It's still their ability that brings about the results. And the amount of direction that is applied might be fairly small in comparison to the power of potential and ability and talent of what those people bring to that outcome. So to maximize that power, that ability for others to achieve, is also about reducing the hurdles, taking away the obstacles, clearing the path, improving the application of those talents or the potential of other people in order to succeed. It's not just about pushing them from behind or encouragement or coercion or motivation. It's about clearing what's in front of them. Then we get to the point about the common goal. And this is the vision of the future as defined and as expressed by that leader. So the goal becomes the purpose, the motivation. And the vision defines that. It becomes the reason why. Why that social influence might apply in a given situation. The vision is why people may follow a leader. So management might use control. It uses the avoidance of variation. Management relies upon control as a safeguard against the variable nature of human beings. So often management as a methodology is deliberately trying to limit the potential for something other than what's explicitly expected or demanded. It's a narrowing process. Leadership goes the other way. Leadership influences people to leverage what they can potentially do. And it doesn't limit them or the way in which they can contribute. It doesn't limit what those resources can bring in the pursuit of that vision or that goal. A big difference between things like control and influence is that influence is given from below. It's given by those who are being influenced. Its permission comes from them where they grant permission to a leader to be influenced by that leader. Control, on the other hand, comes from above. It comes from external sources. It comes from authority and generally has little to no respect for the intentions of those resources, of those people, whether or not they want to be influenced. So influence is based on the internal reward mechanisms within the individual who decide whether or not they're going to grant another person influence over them because of the internal reward that they receive from that. But control is the external consequence that are managed and controlled externally which will apply to the individual if they don't comply with the requirements of that control. Now, this isn't to say that all forms of management completely ignore the feelings, the decisions of the individuals. Not quite like that at all. 
But as a core principle, they do function separately. And yes, in the modern world, we do see a lot of alignment between these two principles. We see a lot of attempts to use leadership on top of management. They often do work together in coordination. So when someone does decide that they're going to give the power of influence to someone else, we often call it followership or sometimes subscription when we talk about the vision. And they subscribe or follow something about that leader. And there's usually one of two things that they will follow. They'll either follow the vision, the vision being a picture of a future that they want to have come into reality. And they'll subscribe to that vision of the future. Or they'll follow and subscribe to the character of that leader. And they'll place their faith in whatever vision that that person might wish to work towards. And they'll contribute their effort to it because they subscribe to the character traits of that person, which they admire, believe in, and trust. So followership is a willing acceptance to invest one's own energy into the goals or objectives or vision as defined by another person being the leader. Our intention to assist them in the pursuit of that vision. So leadership can only apply to that which the follower has themselves got control over, what they have power over. It's only what they have discretionary power over that they can then choose to apply towards the vision. So if we turn this around, we say that leadership is the influence over the discretionary power of other people. It's the influence over what they are empowered to choose, what they are able to choose to do or choose not to do. It's influence over their free will and what it controls. So it only applies to the decisions over which they have some sort of discretion themselves. So an effective vision is a complete picture of the risk and reward of the purpose. It's a complete end-game scenario. It's a full understanding of what the future for that particular follower might be like if they invest and take actions and contribute to that vision. If they follow the path, follow the journey that is defined by that leader, takes them in the direction of that vision, that vision will define the nature of their future existence in some way. So where that vision is incomplete, if it's lacking something, the follower might then use their own assumptions based on what they expect of that leader. If there are details missing in that picture, in that vision, they'll fill the gaps based on their perception of the character traits, the personality and the nature of that leader. And when uncertainties arise and the leader must make decisions that narrow down the direction we're travelling in, the follower will place their faith in the decision-making process of that leader. They'll assume that the gaps in that vision will be decided upon in a way that they will still be aligned with it or be happy to be aligned with it because they are following that individual's character. So followership is emotional in nature. It's an attachment of personal importance to the vision or part of the vision as defined by someone else. And that investment, that emotional investment, is given willingly. But no investment is ever given truly for free. We all give something because we receive something in return. Even when that thing we receive is internal rewards. Even when we give to charity, we do so because of the good feelings we get inside of ourselves for having done so. So what followers get when they follow a leader can be many different things, often personal, very individual, very subjective. But it might include things like 
a sense of being part of something they feel is worthy, belonging to that. And making a contribution to something that they feel is worthy helps them feel aligned with it, helps them feel part of it and can enhance their sense of self-worth because they are contributing to something that they themselves admire. And where they're following an individual because of who that individual is, that's largely because of the example that that leader gives to them. What kind of human being are they? What kind of person? It's how that leader exemplifies certain attributes of human nature that the followers themselves aspire to. And by following that person, by giving them their energy, they aspire and identify those traits within themselves. It could be things like a code of conduct, an example of a philosophy, a set of ethics, morality, integrity. A follower can become part of those values when they join the vision defined by that leader. They embrace some of those ideals, they embody them and identify with them. So humans tend to follow leaders who have traits of this nature that we admire. We get a sense of our own self-worth by contributing to something that that person wants to achieve. So an effective leader needs to live the kinds of values that others aspire to in order to be an effective leader. It's part of the reward factor that feeds back into those who will follow them. So they need to be consistent in their behavior, in their character, in the parts of themselves that others admire and choose to follow them for. If they alter that behavior, if they lose those traits or are perceived to, if they damage that vision of themselves, they might undermine the followership that they get from others. So this raises a question, can leaders be followed but be disliked, perhaps even despised, and still be followed? Well, theoretically, yes, and we can find some examples in history. But the vision that's defined by that leader would need to be that much more potent to the followers to make up for whatever they might perceive as weaknesses in the character of the leader. And the more powerful the vision the more that followers are prepared to accept the limitations in the leader themselves. And the reverse is also true. The more capable, the more powerful, the more worthy the traits of the leader, the more people are willing to be flexible about the definition of the vision. Most of us could probably think of a few examples of leaders in the world today that would fit into either of those two categories. And this is also why we get situational leaders, those who might obtain followers in some situations, but not in others, possibly due to the power of a localized and specific vision that's contextually narrow. And because of their localized, specific application of leadership values, others will follow them in that circumstance, but not in other circumstances. Certain traits might be relevant to a particular situation that might be useful there, but won't make them an effective leader in other situations. A famous example is Winston Churchill, regarded in Britain as one of the greatest wartime leaders in British history, but who was then immediately voted out of office post-war, as he was deemed to be not the right person to lead the recovery of a nation post-war. So true leaders are often followed regardless of the destination. These people are rare, and it's because of their character traits are universally admired. But we can also have passive leaders who don't necessarily leverage the influence that they have. 
These are often just the alpha personalities that we meet from time to time. Others want to identify with them, but that person themselves might not try to exert that influence. Star power is examples of that. Celebrities who don't really want to tell the world what to wear, but simply because of their charismatic influence, what they wear, others will want to wear also. So how might we become a good leader? First, we need to begin with our own character traits. How much of what we do and, and are and behave might be admired by others? And how consistently do we do that? And how can we increase that? How can we limit the management methods we use and not necessarily take away the power of others, but try to influence it and maximize it socially? Now, apart from having ideal leadership traits, we also need a vision, a clear vision, one that others can understand and therefore subscribe to. An idea of what we strive for, what we stand for. And it must be something consistent. If we keep changing it, it'll be hard for people to continue following where we're going, unless, of course, they greatly admire us. But generally, it can be as simple as treating others the way we want others to treat us. When we treat others in a way that they enjoy and they are pleased by, we gain a measure of emotional, subconscious influence over that person, not least of which is their intention to reciprocate, to treat us in a similar way because they feel we've earned that from them and it leads on from there. So we all know what works for us. We know what we would follow in others. We know what examples we admire. We know what traits would generate leadership and would get followership from us. And we can gain influence by respecting the power that others have, by showing them our vision, seeking their understanding of it first, and their buy-in to it second, and encouraging their subscription to that vision last. By being ready to leverage what they have to offer in the pursuit of that vision, to promote the value that those people have and that what they bring, and to help it shine, and to work with and to work for others to remove the obstacles to their power and their success, to help them, to help us, to help the vision. But we have to keep true to that vision. It must be shared. It must be understood. We as the leader are the representative of that vision. So we need to do so consistently, lest we confuse and distort people's understanding of the vision and possibly compromise their commitment to it. We need to find our own definition of what leadership means to us. But most importantly, when we have that, we need to live it. We can't let it pass us by as simply an optional idea or an alternative to management. We should embrace it fully and become the leader that we can be. This brings us to the end of Lecture 8C. Hello and welcome to Lecture 8D of MGI 521 Professional Communications. This is Brenton Birchmore. We're going to have a quick chat about emotional intelligence or EQ. Now what is EQ? Well, it stands for Emotional Quotient. And it's often referred to as our emotional intelligence. And it's often cited against or in contrast to what was originally its measuring cousin of IQ or Intelligence Quotient. So it can be intended as a measurement of a person's grasp of emotional or human issues, often considered in direct contrast to and quite separate from their ability to grasp technical or intellectual issues, which is what is governed by IQ. 
So it's a way of separating these two things. So before EQ was properly theorized, everything was put down to raw intelligence, our computation ability. But our ability to interact with humans was considered to be some kind of reflection of that. Now, we all know that highly intellectually clever people are not necessarily great at working or understanding other people. There are different levels of aptitude, and that's what EQ has evolved to try to represent and to understand. But EQ and its meaning to us in society has continued to evolve over time. From originally being a measure of sensitivity, of something more complex than simply technical things, today it's less about its ability to measure, it's less about being a yardstick for anything, it's more about being a focus point for things like leadership principles, human interaction guidelines. Because it's dealing with the human and emotional issues, it's harder to quantify and hence its role as a scorekeeper has been somewhat diminished. EQ relies on the idea that humans need other humans in order to succeed, in general. And our ability to positively interact with other humans is a key to our success, or at the very least, it's a key to the upper levels of our success, the potential that we could achieve. Thus, it's considered to be an extremely important asset to any person. But it's often rather poorly defined, or it has been in the past. In simple terms, EQ can be thought of as understanding emotions, but it is more complex than that. Within EQ, to understand other people's emotions, we first need to have a deeper understanding of our own. What we typically see in others is a reflection of what we see in ourselves. And our own internal person is really the only benchmark that any of us have a comparison to help us understand someone else. We are the only person that we truly know best. And the more we know ourselves, the more we're able to use that knowledge to then extrapolate and help us understand others. A modern definition of EQ is often described in five separate categories or aspects of EQ. The first of these is self-awareness. It means to know thyself or to consider oneself. It means to ask ourselves introspective questions about what we feel and why we feel that. Does it mean psychoanalyzing ourselves? Well, perhaps a little bit, yes. It's about knowing what's going on in our own mental and emotional state, weighing it up, assessing it, measuring our emotional condition, both in the abstract sense, a generic a mood or feeling, but also with the specifics the individual thoughts and feelings that contribute to that mood. It includes understanding our response to specific situations or specific stimuli. So EQ, self-awareness, is not just thinking of ourselves in terms of a general undercurrent of how we feel about nothing in particular or everything altogether, which is merely just an aggregation of all of our individual feelings about specific things. True EQ is understanding those individual specific emotional responses and what's caused them and why they've come about and what has occurred in our mind to make them relevant to us and to make them contribute to our whole being. By understanding why we have the responses we do, we have a better chance of being able to influence and adapt those responses. Which brings us to point two in EQ, which is self-regulation. And this stems from knowing our own emotional disposition 
and understanding it, as we just discussed with self-awareness. But it also moves into understanding how we and how emotions influence our own disposition. So self-regulation talks about moderating our own behavior, our own thoughts, and more specifically, how our emotional situation influences our decisions. It helps us maintain an appropriate interaction with things and people around us. It means that we're not over-responding internally to something, because that can lead to externally over-responding or over-reacting to things. It means limiting some of the more extreme emotional influences on our decision-making. For example, controlling things like our impulses. It means how we might maintain our integrity and our response to things like temptation, our sense of responsibility and accountability for things, our ability to be flexible and adapt to new situations and not react poorly to the new or to the unexpected, and our openness to innovation and new ideas. All of this comes from our ability to moderate and self-regulate our responses to all of these different kinds of stimuli. So often people who we might regard as being responsible, flexible, able to handle new ideas and high integrity, these are generally people who are merely self-regulated. The third point is on motivation. This part of EQ is our ability to direct our energy, our willingness to convert an intention or a desire into action. Action being the investment of energy and effort. We might want a cup of coffee, but will we get up out of our chair and go to make it? It's a willingness to equate the investment of energy with the reward that that effort will bring or with the satisfaction that it will bring. Aligning success with the need to perform. Motivation is about understanding that to succeed, we must exert. Being ready to act, willing to act, and expecting success from that action. Having a positive expectation. Now these first three points are what we call intrapersonal. That is, they are within ourselves. It's our internal consistency and our internal understanding of EQ within ourselves. The next two are the externalization of that. And point four is empathy. And this is about seeing all of the three things that we just talked about in other people. It's about knowing their feelings, correctly identifying and understanding the influences at work upon their emotional disposition, correctly perceiving their feelings and looking for and acknowledging the signs of emotional influence on the decision-making of others, and then responding and adapting to the presence of those emotions in other people. In short, it's taking other people's feelings into account. It helps us to want to meet the needs of others because we can understand their needs and by understanding their emotional needs, we can understand the validity of those needs. That means we're not dismissing them out of hand. It means we're not disregarding them because seeing the mechanisms that have led to that emotion helps us understand that that emotion is valid, should be allowed to exist, cannot be simply dismissed and must be something that we should reasonably respond to in a positive and helpful way. This might allow us to help others improve their condition or situation or disposition. It helps us accept the differences in different people or in the same person but at different times. 
Once we can more easily understand and accept that there are different emotional contributors from one person to another on their decisions, then we can more easily accept the differences between those people. And as we accept the differences between those people, we can accept all differences between all people. And by accepting the differences between people, we can more readily understand how to help them achieve at their best, how to leverage their potential, how to lead them. The fifth element of EQ is more broadly about our social skills. This is like a catch-all. This is the application of everything we've talked about in the first four points, but in a variety of ways and with a variety of means. It is the artful use of knowledge in the moment for positive outcomes. Knowledge about the emotional condition of other people right now in this moment, what's relevant in this moment, and using that knowledge and that awareness for positive outcomes. So our social skills relate to our ability to influence others for positive gain, their gain and ours, our ability to lead and show leadership, our ability to inspire others. It's about using our capacity for human interaction to achieve things, for us to achieve and for them to achieve, which means it's about our communications, our ability to communicate that understanding, to communicate and understand their position, to communicate effectively and purposefully for mutual benefit, which is our ability to bond with others, to form relationships, to create an interaction that might allow others to have a sense of followership towards us, to give us their energy and give us their commitment to what we aspire to. Such bonding can be a positive intent for the betterment of others in both directions. Or, in the reverse, perhaps in resolving conflict. So if we can't positively bond because a conflict exists, we might use our social skills and our EQ to effectively resolve that conflict and create an opportunity for a new kind of relationship or new kind of interaction. It's basically how we work together to achieve things collectively and collaboratively. And where the final success is greater than the sum of the parts. So from all of this, we can see that the fundamentals of EQ are at the very core of leadership and team success. It's a blueprint for how to succeed with people and for people. Now, when emotions are generally positive and everyone's happy, things can be pretty easy. It's when things are tough that our EQ really matters. And that's also when it's really tested. And that's when our real strength and our discipline and our ability to fully and truthfully understand ourselves and others, is then fully revealed. Because our emotions are far more troublesome on our decision-making when our negative emotions are the dominant ones at play. This is when we most need our skills to self-analyze, to be most aware of our state, to be aware of these negative emotions and how they will manifest or how they will influence our decisions, perhaps in damaging ways. And our ability to regulate the impact of those negative emotions on our decision-making is a true test of our EQ capability internally. And similarly, our ability to recognize this in others, to know when other people have powerful negative emotional influences on their decision-making, our ability to make allowances for that, to empathize with them, but also at times to help them manage that for more positive outcomes to help us interact with them for a more positive outcome, 
rather than to react to the emotion and exacerbate it or potentially make it worse. EQ happens all day, every day. Every time we interact with someone, some degree of our EQ is used. It never stops. And we do it subconsciously most of the time. So subconsciously that it can make it very difficult to change and improve our use of EQ. Whatever we do right now with EQ is most likely the accumulation of a lifetime of habit. If we're going to change this, well, first we need to understand the depths of what EQ can do and the mechanisms behind it. But secondly, we also need a reason to change. We need an awareness of the benefits of improving our own EQ, of at least making some attempts to think about it. If we look around us at some others that we've worked with, we've encountered, we'll know some people who have self-regulated emotions. They have self-awareness. Their ability to empathise with our emotional situation, and we know that that's been good for us. And we can see a correlation with their skills in EQ and our positive gain, and our desire to reciprocate that with them. These are likely the people with a higher IQ. We'll see them because they'll usually stand out. Our intention should be to recognise those skills, to recognise those strengths in others around us, and to want to emulate those that we enjoy, respect and appreciate. To adopt some of those attitudes from the examples that we've appreciated in others, but also to do it in our own way, to find our own path, to understand ourselves first. Having high EQ is not simply a handy and useful idea for leadership success. It's not just another tool to put in our toolbox. It will typically have more impact on our lives, on our career, on our personal success than any specific knowledge of applications of theory or any technical or practical expertise. Our EQ often sets the upper limits of success, the maximum that we can achieve. And it does this because it sets the maximum to which we can be trusted by others around us. Because trust is a primarily emotional condition, and it's a responsive condition. People will trust us based on what their feelings tell them about us. So if we cannot trust our emotions, if we cannot trust how those emotions influence our decisions, because we don't fully understand how our emotions influence our decisions and how they shape us, If we can't trust that, then others won't trust that in us either. And if they can't trust our emotions and how they affect us, then they won't trust what we decide. And if they can't trust what we will decide, they won't follow us. They won't trust our leadership. And perhaps some of the most important responsibilities and most important opportunities will go to someone else, someone who can and who does encourage a greater and more complete sense of trust in others. It's often argued how much IQ and EQ, comparatively with respect to each other, how much each relates to personal and career success. This is about knowledge versus conduct, IQ versus EQ. And some research and some psychologists have said that the role of IQ versus EQ can be as distorted as being 10% to 90%, where only 10% of our raw intelligence is useful towards our success, and 90% may be our ability to interact with others. But even those researchers and psychologists that suggest that IQ is more than 10%, few believe that it's more than perhaps 25% of our success, which means at least 75% 
well over half of what we achieve, our long-term success as a person, will be more determined by our EQ than our IQ. Surely that would be a good enough reason for us to think how we might improve upon our own EQ. This is the end of Lecture 8D.